Good morning, Hope. My name is Sarah. I am the worship coordinator here at Lutheran Church of Hope of Ames. And you, I've been here for what, in this role for about a year and a half, but my husband and I and our family have been a part of this congregation for, I don't know, several years. We were here kind of from the get-go in Ames. And we have a pretty Oh, we have a big life. So we have a bunch of kids, or it feels like a bunch of kids to us anyway. We have a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, a two-year-old, and a, did I say a five-month-old already? Did I, am I repeating myself? Seven, five, two, there we go, in five months, that's why. But there's a picture on the screen here of at Christmas. This is the closest we've come to having a family picture like in a minute, right? And we're not even in it. Um, like when Kaya was born, there's still not a picture of all of us together, uh, just because life is moving at a pretty quick pace. This was taken after the Christmas Eve services. Um, they had opened their Christmas jammies. Uh, they knew that St. Nick was coming. They were super excited. And like the only one who is looking at the camera, like he's blurry. The other three are just like looking in all sorts of directions. Our life is out of control sometimes. It's just super busy. Uh, we have a, a neighbor who just adopted a goat and that goat likes to come over and play. I work, Jean works. It's just, it's just a really full life that we're trying to wrap our arms around. And because of that, sometimes like little bits and pieces of things fall through the cracks, little details, if you will. If you want more on that, Matthew, our worship leader this morning, can give you a little bit more insight into how sometimes I let like little details fall through the cracks. He experienced that, unfortunately, this morning. But speaking of Matthew, can we just give him uh, just a round of applause for leading this morning? Matthew led worship here for several years, and we are so grateful that he was able to join us this morning. Uh, good news, he rescued you from today becoming The Sarah Show. <laughs> so it's nice to have him here, uh, and it's nice to have him back today. Uh, but today, we are going to focus in on one of the things that, for me, would have been a detail that fell through the cracks. In our scripture reading today, we have three verses from Luke chapter 8. And to be honest with you, it's a segue. That's our scripture reading today. It's a segue. So in reading the Bible uh, in this area, I would have read about Luke 7. I would have noticed that there's a woman who anoints Jesus's feet. And I also would have noticed later in chapter 8 how's the, how there's this parable of the sower. I would have saw that. I would have most certainly missed these three scriptures at the beginning. But the reason that we're focusing in on this little segue today is because the gospel writer Luke has packed some beautiful and interesting little tidbits in today. And so today we're gonna take our time, we're gonna see the story in the segue and find out some really important and interesting things about what Jesus is doing during his ministry here on earth. So let's dive in. In Luke 8, verses one through three, it says, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news of the kingdom of God. So we, he, we see here that Jesus has, he's begun his earthly ministry, and as a part of that, he is traveling, and he is announcing the kingdom of God has finally come. God has come near to dwell with his people, and this is what it looks like when God is king. People are healed, people are set free. This is what it looks like when God is king. Now it says a little bit later in this verse that there are 12 disciples who were with them. So we're used to hearing about these 12 disciples of Jesus. These are the disciples that were at the Last Supper. 
These are the disciples that would have been really on the front lines of the ministry uh, that Jesus was, was doing. These are the ones that we hear about who sometimes don't always shine in the brightest light. They're the ones fighting over who gets to sit at the Lord's right side. Uh, they're the ones who maybe are a little bit known for betraying him or denying him. But these are the 12 disciples that we're used to hearing about. But we learn in this passage that there are some other disciples who are along for the ride and following Jesus as well. And dun, 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 they're a bunch of women. Isn't that exciting? So how many of you in the room today are like, I was today years old when I found out that Jesus had lady disciples. There we go. Um, he had a bunch of disciples. So we know that there are these 12 in Luke 10, it also talks about Jesus having these other disciples with him. Uh, it talks about sending out 72 disciples. And what these 72 disciples did is went before Jesus into the towns, before he got there, to kind of get the party started, to let them know that the kingdom of God had come near. Jesus authorized them and gave them authority to heal all types of diseases. And what we can gather from this passage in Luke 8 is that a bunch of these people that would have gone before Jesus, that would have been authorized and given authority to go heal diseases and to go announce the kingdom of God, we can safely assume that many of these disciples were also women. So who are these lady disciples of Jesus? We don't know all of their names. A lot of the people that had been healed of diseases or had been freed from darkness are not, their names aren't noted in scripture. But today, we do have three names that were given to us. And Luke is intentional to name their names because Luke is intentionally saying, these are the eyewitnesses to what Jesus did on earth. Eyewitness testimony is important. This is how we can verify that it is true. We need to be able to go to this person and say, did you see this? Did you hear this? And these women are listed by name so that they can testify to the truth of what they've seen. So if we look at who these women are, the first one, we're going to go in backwards order, backward order. The first one that we hear about is named Susanna. We don't hear really anything else about Susanna, but we know that she was a follower of Jesus and we can probably assume that she'd either been healed or set free in some sort of way. Now, the next person that we hear a little bit about is named Joanna. And Joanna has a pretty interesting story. What we see on this next slide is that Joanna was the wife of Cusa. And who was Cusa? Cusa was Herod's business manager. So let's do a quick history lesson here. Herod the Great was the king of Judea when Jesus was born. He's known for having like incredible architectural advancements and he's known for being very violent, and he's known for being very wealthy. This is the king that would have been king of Judea who ordered, if you remember, at the time of Jesus' birth, he would have ordered the killing of the male babies that were born because he was concerned that someone would take over his throne. This king, when he died, it was around 4 AD, and after he died, the Roman Empire came in, divided up his wealth, divided up his territory amongst his sons and his sister. One of his sons is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was ruling over this area of Galilee where Jesus was ministering. Herod Antipas, because he inherited wealth from his father, would have been very wealthy. 
Who managed this wealth for Herod Antipas? A guy named Cusa. Who was Cusa married to? Joanna. What did Joanna do? She followed Jesus and apparently paid some bills along the way. Pretty interesting stuff in the segue, huh? The last follower of Jesus that we're gonna talk about that's included in this passage is a woman named Mary. One of the things I was reading about this week that talked about these witnesses of Jesus is that a lot uh, of things that were uh, witnessed by Jesus, or excuse me, were witnessed by women in Jesus's ministry were witnessed by women. And if we took out the things from Jesus's life that weren't witnessed by women, we wouldn't really lose all that much. And if we took out only the things that weren't witnessed by some type of Mary, we'd still really only lose not that much. Mary was a really common name. There was Mary, his mother. There was Mary Magdalene. You hear about Mary and Martha. Later in the Gospels, there were a lot of women named Mary. One of them is Mary Magdalene. And she's known here as having seven demons cast out of her. And may I just like put a quick pause and say, I'm so happy for her. But also, this is how she like goes down in history. Mary, the woman who had seven demons cast out of her. And I just am really grateful that that's not one of the identifiers that we walk along with today. Like, oh, there's Sarah Bradley. She had 13 demons cast out of her. I'm just really grateful that there are other ways to distinguish who's who. But Mary, we don't know much about her. Some church traditions say that she was a prostitute before we met Jesus. There's nothing in scripture that holds to that fact. And so that's not the assumption that we're gonna carry about Mary today. What we do know about Mary is that Jesus found her, Jesus saved her. And after that moment, she was never the same because she became one of Jesus's most loyal and faithful followers from that point on. Like I've already alluded to, women were witnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus. And the gospel writer Luke notes these women to ensure that we know their names, that history knows their names, because they are able to testify about the good works that they saw Jesus do. Women were there for so many important milestones of Jesus's life. So if you think about it this way, when he Or who was the first person that found out that there was a Messiah that was going to be born? His mother, Mary. Who is the woman who, when she saw the pregnant mother of Jesus, prophesied and said the baby in her womb leapt because she had seen the mother of the Messiah? Elizabeth. Who is the person that is the first person in the New Testament to be called a prophet? who was in the temple and prophesied over Jesus eight days after he was born. Anna, who is the first person in the book of John who uh, had a conversation with Jesus. And in that conversation, he first identified in the book of John to this person that he was the Messiah, the Samaritan woman at the well. And who are these women? A pregnant teenager, a woman who had struggled with infertility her whole life. And now that she was older, she was pregnant a woman who'd been widowed at a really young age, and a Samaritan woman who had been divorced a bunch of times and had had just a history of broken relationships. These are the cast of characters that God handpicks to tell his story. And who are they? What do they have in common? Society didn't care about them. 
They were second-class citizens. They weren't highly esteemed. They weren't highly valued. They didn't have anything to offer. But these are the people that God looks at and says, you, you are the one I want to have tell my story. I want you to show the world what I am going to do. In fact, Jesus' first miracle was witnessed by some women. And some might even argue it was even done because of a woman, right? His first miracle was turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. He and his disciples are there and Mary, his mother, comes to him and says, they have run out of wine. And do you know what Jesus says? He looks at her and says, and I'm not kidding, this is in the Bible. He looks at her and says, dear woman, that is not our problem. And I just imagine, like as a mom and the son of God, like getting a little bit sassy, like I just imagine, as a mom, that Mary probably looked at him with like a mom stare. After the like, dear woman, that's not our problem. She like stares at him. And then I imagine her turning to the servants and being like, listen, you do whatever he tells you to do. And then I just imagine her giving in like, just sealing the deal with like one more mom stare and then just walking away. And what does Jesus do? He tells the disciples, fill up the jars with water, and then he turns the water into wine. His first miracle, why? Because his mom told him to. <laughs> or in Luke 7, we see this woman who is anointing the feet of Jesus. Now this is an interesting story. This Pharisee invites Jesus over for dinner. Somebody who is highly esteemed in society, someone who is important in society, invites Jesus over for dinner. And this woman who scripture calls immoral, and that's a pretty delicate description of what her actual reputation probably was. But scripture calls her immoral. And what does she do when she hears that Jesus is, is at this house? She goes. She, she goes and she goes in just knowing what everyone must think of her. She goes knowing that everyone in town knows what her story is. They know, they know what she's responsible for, what kind of life she's lived, what her dirty laundry is like. They all know. And she pushes through this crowd and she finds Jesus and she kneels at his feet. And it says she washes his feet with her tears and that she dries his feet with her hair. And then she anoints his feet with expensive perfume. This woman that everyone knew about put on quite an extravagant display of her love for Jesus. Now, Jesus could have been embarrassed by that because it was pretty public. It was pretty extravagant. And she was known for her immorality. In fact, when a Pharisee is like even thinking to himself, like, ugh, ugh, if he even knew who was touching him, he'd send her away, ugh. But what does it say that Jesus said? It says he could tell what the Pharisee was thinking. And he said this, hey, when I came in, you didn't even offer me water for my dusty feet. And she wept and cleaned my feet with her tears. You didn't anoint my head with oil as a courtesy when I came in, and she anointed my feet. You didn't greet me with a kiss when I walked in, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. 
When everyone else would have cast this woman aside and said she is a nothing, she is a nobody, she doesn't belong here, her history is disgusting and we will have nothing to do with her, Jesus elevates her in history and says this, this is the type of person I came for. This is the type of follower that I want. You can have your society all you want. You can have your power and your control and your smugness, but this this person who knows what she's been forgiven of, this person who knows what I've set her free from, she, she'll follow me. So if these are the women that Jesus chooses to elevate in the gospel accounts, perhaps then we have something to learn from them. So what could we possibly be learning from these women? Well, in Luke 8, it says that these women who followed Jesus contributed to Jesus from their own resources to support his ministry. So in this account, it's pretty indicative that a lot of followers like Joanna helped financially support the work of Jesus and his disciples. And what's interesting is that word contributed that's there, it's a Greek word called diakoneo. Can everybody say diakoneo? Well done. Diakoneo means to serve, to wait upon, to minister, to attend to the needs of others. And what's interesting is this word is used several times in the four gospels to describe how women served Jesus. Martha makes a meal for Jesus, that's diakoneo. Peter's mother-in-law is healed from a fever. She gets up and she serves Jesus a meal, that's diakoneo. These women contributed to the ministry of Jesus and his disciples, that is diakoneo. And do you wanna know something else really interesting? That word in those four gospels is never once used to describe the work that men did to serve Jesus. And would you like to know how I felt about that this week? Felt great. Here's why. I was pretty annoyed. Truth, we can get annoyed with the things we read in scripture. There's actually some fun to be had in that sometimes because then you get to wrestle with it and find out these treasures that are there just a little below the surface that you may not have known about. So I was annoyed. And you wanna know why? Because it feels like it fits a gender stereotype. What were the men doing? They were on the front lines. They were preaching, they were healing, they were doing all these other things. What are these women doing? They were cooking. They were serving, and oh, that just annoyed me. Do you wanna know why? Because I feel like in society, we run into ideas about where women belong and how much space women are allowed to take up and what seat women are allowed to have at the table all the time. And when we run into these types of limitations and restrictions at church, golly, it's painful. It's hard to run up into these restrictions that say, women, you belong here, but not here. Oh, it's frustrating. There are these conversations that we have, these doctrinal debates that talk about, are women allowed to do this or this or that? Can they teach, but only in these contexts or whatever? But I just wanna offer a word of caution to us today. As we're having these debates, and they're interesting and they're important and they're worth our time. People have dedicated their entire lives to this topic, their entire lives worth of research to this topic. It's an important topic and it's worthy of study. 
But a word of caution is that there are real lives, real stories, real families, and real gifts that are affected by these debates. And these debates bring in topics like obedience to God, biblical authority, and order of creation. And sometimes those ideas are used to say, therefore women, here are the seats you can sit at, here are the spaces you are allowed to hold. But God from the very beginning created women with dignity and with value. He gifted women and he affirmed their humanity and affirmed their authority. And if you're a woman here today who has carried bruises or scars or wounds from harsh restrictions or unkind words, let me say this, Jesus sees you, Jesus loves you, Jesus has space for you, he offers you a beautiful seat at the table, and he's not sorry for giving you a gift. And he invites you to fully deploy that gift for the use in the kingdom of God. And here is why. Because from the very beginning of time, creator God has been telling the same story about who he created women to be and about the work that he created women to do. If we go to chapter one in Genesis, says, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. It's like one of my favorite phrases in scripture, the scurry along the ground bit. I love to think about God talking about animals scurrying. God is saying, let's make humans, man and, and white, man and woman, excuse me, man and woman in our image to look like us, to carry our authority. If we look at it in the second chapter of Genesis, there it tells the same story, but a different way. It says, the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God forward from the ground all the wild animals and the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to the livestock, all the birds of the sky and all the wild animals, but there was still no helper just right for him. Moving on. It says, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. This second account cracks me up a little bit because Jesus makes a person and then he looks and he's like, oh no. My, my, my human being that I made, my human being is lonely. My dust person is lonely. I'll make a helper for him. I know what I'll do. I'll make some animals from the dust. And so I imagine God like forming an elephant and being like, okay, helpful, but maybe not like right, quite the right fit. Mm, okay, so like a horse, super helpful, maybe not like quite the right fit. And why? God is dissatisfied with the help that animals provide because they might be helpful, but they're not the helper. They're not an equal match. God isn't looking for an assistant for his human. He is looking for a helper for his human. One who can carry an equal distribution of load. One who can be by this person's side as he carries the mission of God into creation. So who does God make? It says he makes a helper. Now that word, we're gonna learn like one more new word today. 
That word in Hebrew for helper is azer. Can everybody say azer? Good job. Azer. This is simply one who helps. So, okay, that's fine. It doesn't really give you a ton of context there, but here's this. If we look at how that word is used in the rest of the Old Testament, would you like to know how that word gets used? It's used to describe a warrior who goes into battle, who's helpful, who's a rescuer. But more often than that, it's used to describe God himself because God is the help for his creation. God is the help for his family, Israel. God is the great helper of the universe, as I heard Pastor Richard say last week. God is the great helper of the universe. And that is who he creates for the first person to stand beside. And this person was taken from the man's rib. It was taken from the man's side to stand at his side, to serve alongside. It's not someone who's below or above, and it's certainly not someone he has to look after and be responsible for. It's someone who can help, who can carry an equal distribution of weight of the mission that God gave them. And what was the mission? To be fruitful and multiply, to govern over creation. And being fruitful and multiplying, by the way, that's not just about making babies. This isn't about marriage, this is about mission. Be fruitful and multiply. Go govern creation. Go see what treasures lay there. Multiply what's there that can be creative. Go make art. Go make music. Go make technological advances. Go invent and discover new and exciting things. Go be like me in creation. Go reflect my glory into creation. Go remind who creation, who God looks like. And it takes both of you. God's plan was and still is to have his image bearers reflect his glory into creation together, side by side. See, there is an order to how God created things. There is an order that is worth maintaining, and it is God, humanity, creation. He gave the mandate to the humans to go govern together. But when the fall happened, that got twisted and distorted. So instead of governing together, they tried to govern each other and they lost sight of the mission, which was to go and be fruitful and multiply and go show my glory. And instead it became about control and who could control and who could oppress whom and who could be in charge and who could get power. And that is where we see all sorts of just evil in the world today. Things like slavery or oppression or evil empire. It's from that early desire to just be over the other instead of beside the other. In the New Testament, it talks about, in 1 Corinthians 12, it says, but we've all been baptized into one body by one spirit. And we all share that same spirit. In the New Testament, there's this idea that says, wait a second, we're not supposed to be ruling over each other. We're supposed to be ruling over creation together. And First Peter says it like this, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. 
Peter is writing to the church and saying, these gifts that God has given you, the Holy Spirit has given you these gifts. Use them regardless of what type of body that gift came in, that gift should be fully deployed to advance the kingdom of God and share the good news about what Jesus is doing in our world. And here's something interesting, that word serve that's there. Do you know what that word is? Diakoneo. See, in the first four, chapter, in the first four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, the, the stories that uh, make up what we know as the Gospels, this word diakoneo is used to describe how the work, or excuse me, describe the work that the women do for Jesus. But something changed after his resurrection. So instead of it being the work that the women do, it is the work that we all are expected to do. See, the women who follow Jesus, who had been healed and set free, I think had a different idea about his ministry. Some of the people who followed Jesus were really hoping he was gonna be this Messiah who would overthrow Rome, who would overthrow the evil empire and who would be the one to finally put everybody else in their place and let them be in charge. And do you know what that was? It was a continuation of that early struggle, that early tug of war for power. And people wanted Jesus to win that tug of war once and for all and say, he's over everybody. But the women who served Jesus because of, I think, what they'd been freed from and healed from, had a different view of his ministry. They realized that the front lines weren't about power or control, but the front lines were down here. The front lines were about washing feet. The front lines were about healing the sick. The front lines were about making sure that babies didn't die because they were hungry. The front lines were making sure that people had enough to feed their families. The front lines were about reaching out to the people that felt like they were outsiders from the church. The front lines were about making sure that the feet were washed, that people were loved, that people were served. So even today, can women lead and teach and use their gifts? Yeah, sure can. But just like it wasn't about a power grab then, it's not about a power grab now. It's not about us like clamoring for the top position. It's about saying, hey, the work's down here. And saying to everybody else, come join me, won't you? Come join me down here where we're serving because the higher you go in leadership, the lower you go in humility because the humble places, the low places are the holy places. They may not be glamorous, they may not be powerful, but oh, they are holy and that is because that is where Jesus is. And what we see is that serving and service isn't feminine, it's just faithful. It's not woman's work, it's God's work among us. These women that followed Jesus followed him to the very end. They stood at the cross and they watched 
as he suffered excruciating torment. I did a little bit of reading about the crucifixion in the last couple of weeks. And I could like barely read it. And I finally had to kind of close the books on it. It was really gruesome. It was really violent. And the details were really, really difficult to stomach. I could barely read it. And these women watched it. They stayed. When other people thought they'd been serving a failed Messiah and they hid and they left him, they stayed. They watched the one who had healed them become bruised and wounded. They watched the one who had forgiven all their sins become sin himself. They watched as the one who freed them from darkness seemingly was overcome by darkness. They heard him cry out from thirst. They heard him give up his spirit and they watched him die. We can have discussions about, well, it was safer for the women to be there. Not really. It wasn't a safe place for anybody to be, much less a woman. It wasn't safe at the foot of the cross. But they stayed. These ace heirs stayed. They stayed to help because they remembered their mission that they were helpers. And so when the kingdom of darkness was trying to take out the son of God, they stayed and they knew that especially at this time, it wasn't good for that man to be alone. So they stayed and they served. They were ready to help. And when they took his body off the cross, they followed him to the tomb and they saw where he was laid. And then they had to go home because it was Passover and they had to follow that law. But after Passover, they came back to help. They came back to serve. There's something that these women just understood about Jesus that truth be told, I want to understand too. We, we talk about service, oh, but sometimes it's really hard. Because <laughs> it's when we're in service, it's when we see Jesus hanging on the cross that we realize like serving isn't fancy. It is messy and it is hard, but it is holy. And it's where that pride that is just so connected to our humanity just gets torn away. And it's in that space where those desire to, that desire to go hold power and control and authority and we realize that that's maybe not ours to have. It is God's. And what does God do with his authority and his power and his control? In Mark 10, it says that he came to serve. That word that ugh, really irritated me this week. That made me just, it just rubbed me the wrong way. Because I wanted to hear about power. I wanted to hear about all the things that God says you can do. And by the way, yeah, we can do them. But we don't do them up here. We do them down here. Where the brokenhearted are. Where the marginalized are. 
All of the people that have been told you don't belong, like the woman who came and anointed Jesus' feet, who broke through that shame, and Jesus said, you, you are the one I came for. That's the one that we come for too. The ones that have a bad reputation. The ones who know, yeah, our sins are many. Those are the ones we come to serve because our Savior came to serve. Guess what that word is there? He didn't come to be served, but to serve. It's diakoneo. It's the same word. He's the only man in the four gospels who gets to describe his work with serve. That's the one that we follow. And if he came to serve, so can we. Jesus said, I didn't come to have a meal prepared for me. I came to prepare a meal for you. I am the bread of life. Taste and see that I am good. I didn't come for you to give me a drink. I came because I know you're thirsty. So I've come and I have rivers of living water for you to drink. Are you tired and weary and carrying heavy burdens, come to me, I'll give you rest. And when everyone else has left you, when everyone else has seen the worst of you and maybe abandoned you, Jesus says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you and you are mine. And so what do we do when we're his? We live like him. We serve like him. We go to the low places because that's where we've been found. Let's worship church.